of civil procedure, even though we determined that the only two rules governing pleadings are Rule 8 and Rule 9, and that Rule 8 pleadings most commonly are lower standard pleadings, they don't require this heightened standard of particularity, but instead just need to be plain, uh, short and plain statements, there is still this thing where the pleadings need to be plausible. So before plausible, the old rule established underneath the case called Conley is that the claims had to be conceivable. And the purpose of this rule was just to weed out all the crazy claims where aliens are conspir uh, making conspiracies with the presidency uh, to steal money from me and just taking out all the crazy claims because people can file claims themselves and people can be crazy and they do make crazy claims that are alleged in court. But this changed somewhat with a case called Twombly. And Twombly was a complicated antitrust claim. So what happened here is that a person claimed that uh, companies, uh, communication companies, were conspir uh, conspired together to take certain areas and ultimately just jack up the prices for consumers. And yes, it's conceivable that that is the case, but the court in Twombly said that it wasn't really plausible that that was the case. And to make it plausible, you need to have an additional fact to go along that takes it from conceivable to plausible. The thing is, is that attorneys thought this rule only applied to complicated pleadings such as antitrust. But Iqbal changed this by applying uh, a relatively simple pleading to making it so the Twombly rule applied to all civil claims. Conley is still going to be the standard for state courts, but Iqbal now is the standard for federal courts. So what is Ashcroft versus Iqbal? Well, after 9-11, uh, the federal government ended up rounding up a lot of citizens uh, of the United States and otherwise, and in this case it was uh, a person who had overstayed their visa. Uh, he was Muslim, his name was Iqbal, and he was sent to a detention center to be questioned about uh, dealings with 9-11. He had overstayed his visa, he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, ultimately, everybody that they detained didn't really do anything wrong. It was just a lot of fear about a lot of extra backlash that didn't end up coming after 9-11. And so he's taken into questioning, and he's claiming that he was, first of all, detained improperly and prejudiced because of his nationality, uh, his race, and his religion. And so he's claiming that there are First and Fifth Amendment claims against him. Uh, well, again, he has First and Fifth Amendment claims against the federal government because he was being mistreated. And he says that Ashcroft, the attorney general at the time, and Mueller, the FBI director at the time, had authorized not only his detainment, but the uh, mistreatment of him and others in these facilities. And that they did it because of his nationality, race, and religion. So now we have some questions here. Is it possible, is it conceivable, that Iqbal could have had this treatment and Ashcroft and Mueller given him this treatment because of his nationality, race, and religion? The answer is yes. 
the United States has been known to do that in the past. It's conceivable that it could do it again in the future. And it's conceivable that it could have done it again in this case. Was it plausible? And the court here says no. So what's missing? Well, the first thing is that his complaint was missing sufficient facts that would, rem it, that would move it from uh, conceivable to plausible. He needed something to push it over the edge, so to speak. It's not enough to just, uh, what's the word, to make a conclusory statement about the law and saying this person violated the law. It's not enough to do that. You need to say how this person violated the law, and you need a fact to back it up. Well, how do you get these facts? Because you can't just walk up to the FBI and say, hey, did this person violate the law in this way? Because the FBI is not going to give you that information. Most people, if you sue them, aren't going to give you the information you're looking for. What you really need is somebody on the inside, like a whistleblower, to go out and give you that information. So you would have needed somebody from the Attorney General's office or from the FBI to be a whistleblower and to come and provide this factual allegation saying, hey, so-and-so heard Ashcroft and Mueller discussing their reasoning for why they were doing this, and it's unconstitutional. So that information would have needed to be volunteered. Our takeaways from this case, then, is that we have a two-pronged rule. Uh, first is that we need to make statements that are more than conclusory. In other words, they need to be well-pleaded. And if it's well-pleaded, then those statements need to be taken as true. Uh, if you have a whistleblower that comes and uh, says, hey, I heard this and this coming from these people, well, then you have to the court has to assume that that is true. It may not be true, and you can figure that out in, in discovery later, but it's sufficient to make it past pleadings. But if it's taken as true, well, then it also needs to be seen as plausible, not just conceivable. And the phrase for that is that you need to make a well-pleaded claim that shows a plausible claim for belief. Two more important things to note with Iqbal is that it only applies to factual allegations. We'll get into that briefly with Johnson versus the city of Shelby. And second is that the judges are gatekeepers. And so ultimately, it's going to be the judge's determination to see whether or not these cases are going to be deemed as plausible. So it's not really an objective standard like Conley was. It's more subjective which leads us to our second case, Johnson versus City and Shelby. And what happened here is that there were officers who were fired. Uh, they uh, had discovered some criminal activities uh, from one of the city authorities uh, and brought them to light. And the city ended up firing five of these officers, and they're making a claim of, I believe, again, first and fifth, maybe not first, uh, they're saying they violated the Constitution, uh, and it's specifically the code that they're saying they violated is 42 U.S.C. 1983. These are uh, civil right codes, but they didn't state that in their claim, in their pleading. 
they didn't actually write down the code. And it's best practice to write down the code. But the Supreme Court took this to say, hey, even though we kind of heightened the standard in Iqbal, even though we did not heighten the standard in Iqbal, simple little things aren't going to just stop uh, the case from proceeding. It's got to be a pretty big thing still. Something to send it over the top as far as going from conceivable to plausible. Second, Iqbal was about a factual distinction. This is talking about the elements of a uh, elements of law. The two are different. They have to be connected. But you can't just dismiss this claiming Iqbal when it has nothing to do with what Iqbal actually is trying to get to. So that's really the difference between Iqbal and Johnson. Our big takeaways from this is Iqbal does ultimately heighten the standard, even though the court says that it doesn't heighten the standard. It means pleadings are a lot longer after Iqbal because you have to be very, uh, you have to include a lot more facts just to make sure that you get the right facts in there. And so even though the standard wasn't heightened from Rule 8, you do have to end up including more. So less claims are filed, less complaints are filed, and these complaints end up being longer. That's the big outcome, practical outcome, from Iqbal. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice, and with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.